The problem is, is when we measure what it means to be good, often we base it upon personal or worldly views. Without thought toward God, we define what it means to be good by comparing ourselves to others. But when God speaks about good, He is comparing our sinfulness to His sinlessness, our wickedness to His righteousness, our injustice to His justice. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let go. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we're going to see a message I entitled Accounted Righteous from Romans 4, 1 through 12. And I divided it into three parts. Abraham was accounted righteous. Verses 1 through 4, David was accounted righteous, verses 5 through 8, and we can be accounted righteous, verses 9 through 12. And so, blessed is the man, verses 6 through 8, just as David describes the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, quoting from David, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Paul quoting it here in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute sin. Now with Abraham, Paul gives an example of justification that came 420 years before the law of Moses had ever been given. But with David, now he presents a justification by faith 450 years, around 450 years, after the law had been given. And so he's taken both sides of the argument here. Before the law was ever given, 420 years. After the law had been given, 450 years later. David discovers the blessedness that comes by faith. Don't get me wrong. I believe David, when he was younger, had a works for salvation attitude. I believe that it's reflected in in Psalm 26, verse 1, when David wrote, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. So those two lines, I have walked in my integrity. I shall not slip. Lord, vindicate me. That's a works for salvation attitude. Lord, look what I have done in my trust to you. I have walked in integrity, my integrity. I shall not slip. 
But when we get to Psalm 32, when we get to Psalm 51, this is after David had slipped. David was so sure that the combination of his personal integrity, his trust in God, would keep him from slipping into sin. And don't get me wrong, I believe that personal integrity and trust in the Lord are very important characteristics for all of us to have. But we must never allow our personal integrity to be our sole means of our vindication before God. It is only through Jesus Christ that sins can truly be vindicated before God. It is believed that David wrote Psalm 32 in response to God's forgiveness after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had attempted to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy by having her husband Uriah killed, hiding it for nearly nine months, David refused to confess his sin before the Lord. And during this time, David would describe his body, saying his bones grew old as he groaned over his sins all day long, because God's hand was heavy upon him, causing his vitality or his vigor to become like the drought of summer. David's groanings tell us that he felt remorse over his sins. But remorse is not confession. And without confession, there can be no true forgiveness. So Psalm 32.5, this is a good verse. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. Now, Salah is a questionable word that appears in the Psalms. Uh, they're not quite sure what the word means in the Hebrew. Some believe that it was actually a musical term for the uh, musician to have a refrain there just to hold out the cord for a moment. So some believe that by the Salahs, it has this sense of reflecting upon what was just written. Don't rush on to the next verse. Sit on this verse for a moment. Think about it for a moment. Sometimes we rush on. I just took in online class a survey of the Old Testament. I'm not finished yet. I still have a week to go. But in the last 12 weeks, I had to read the Old Testament. And that's a lot of reading in 12 weeks. Plus, I had a textbook of 350 pages on top of that. And I had to write about eight or nine papers about what I was learning from the Old Testament. And uh, I didn't have time to think about what I was reading. I didn't have time to reflect upon, to underline. I just had to do the speed reading course of the Old Testament. And it was fine. It was fine to get a quick overview of the Old Testament, but that's a lot of words to dump in one's mind quickly. And sometimes we don't need just to read through it quickly. We need to slow it down a little bit. Salah, I have acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, I love it. How quickly forgiveness came after David confessed uh, through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13. 
But even here in Psalm 32, 5, I confess my transgressions, you forgave my iniquity. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord was the confession that David gave to Nathan. And Nathan said, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. See, Nathan was sent by the Lord to draw that confession out of his king. That he would cause David to confess his sin that he had been sitting on for almost nine months. He had been sitting on this sin and it had been grieving him. His bones, he, he felt like he had no strength, no vitality. It was wiping him out. And yet he refused. He had remorse. He refused to confess and it was through a story that the prophet told him that drew out that confession. And as soon as David said the words, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan responded, and the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This confession, a declaration made by David. But then he said, how blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. That word in the Greek means to extol as or declare to be blessed. It's a, a state of blessedness. How blessed is the man? Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, oh, how happy is the man? It was only after David had acknowledged his sin, his iniquity, his transgressions to God, that he found forgiveness. And I don't know about you, to find forgiveness from the Lord how happy that makes me. Like David, we are accounted righteous through the confession of our faith. Remember, David, at one time, Psalm 26, verse 1, you can look at it for yourself. David said, Lord, I have walked in my integrity. I shall not slip. But David lost his integrity at some point. He had saw a beautiful woman as a king, and, and the Old Testament rules that they were under at that time, it was permissible to have more than one wife. He sought for that beautiful woman, and he learned that she was married, and yet he sent for her anyways. I think, personally, that David could have said, hey, what about that beauty over there? But when he learned that she was already married, he should have started looking again if he needed another wife. I can't understand why he needed another wife, but if he needed another wife, he should have looked further elsewhere, but he didn't. And yet he found righteousness through confession, not because of his works. His works failed him, but faith through God did not fail him. So we can be accounted righteous, verses 9 through 12. I'll read the context. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted righteous to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. 
and the father of circumcision to those who not only are circumcised, but also those who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while uncircumcised. So Paul first showed us that Abraham was accounted righteous by God, verses 1 through 4, because of the faith that he had in God before the giving of the law, 420 years before the law was ever given, before he was circumcised. He next revealed that David was accounted righteous before God, even after breaking the law of God some 450 years after the law had been given. But it was through the acknowledgement of his sin, his iniquity, his transgressions, that he found forgiveness. Now Paul declares that being accounted righteous can come to everyone who believes in Jesus. Verses 9 and 10, Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? While he was circumcised, but not while uncircumcised. The blessedness that Abraham and David experienced came as a result of God not imputing their sin upon them, but instead he imputed righteousness upon them. Paul has shared about righteousness being imputed upon those who put their trust in God seven times. Romans chapter 4, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 he uses this word imputed, translated for us, imputed in the Old Testament. I think it, the King James Version, I mean, I think the word is translated as reckon. To me, that always reminds me of an old Western movie. Well, I reckon. <laughs> but it is a word to take into account. Uh, the expression is used as a technical term applied to God's act of justification, which is more fully explained in verse 6. He describes this blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. God does not impute righteousness because of works. Remember, if you work, you are owed a debt. And so if you work for your salvation, then God owes you a debt. And you could stand before the Lord at the great white throne and say, or the Bema Seat Judgment Throne, whichever throne you'll be standing before, and you could say, Lord, you owe me this. Here's the work I did. And God would say, oh, you're right. I, I did forget to pay you. No, he won't say that at all. I don't owe you anything. But it was Abraham's faith accounted to him as righteousness while he was uncircumcised. There was no works. There was no law. It was 420 years before the law. He hadn't been circumcised yet. In fact, Paul goes on to explain about the circumcision, verses 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed on them also, 
the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but those also who walk in the steps of faith to which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So whether circumcised or uncircumcised, Paul is saying, it was faith that resulted in Abraham's righteousness. And the argument then is for us, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, it is faith that causes righteousness to be imputed or to be put on our account. Circumcision then became the seal that God placed upon Abraham as a result of the faith that Abraham had placed in God. When in Genesis 15, 5 and 6, God said, Now look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. So will your descendants be. And Abraham looked up the stars and he saw those stars. And the word tells us he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Circumcision then became the seal. It's a Greek word that means a signet. By implication, it's a stamp, meaning it's genuine. Today, our seal of faith is not only the outward cutting away of the flesh, but it's an inward cutting away of the heart by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that of outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not of the letter, and those whose praise is not from men, but from God. That seal, we also know it as the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to those who believe in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1.13. In him you have been also trusted, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, through our faith, having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. This blessedness, this declaration, a word that means to extol or to declare blessed, it comes to those who are either circumcised or uncircumcised. Therefore, Abraham then becomes the father of both, both the uncircumcised and the circumcised, but only to those who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had. Like Abraham and David, we are counted righteous by walking in the steps of faith. Righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Abraham was accounted righteous. And like Abraham, we too are accounted righteous by faith. David, we learn, was accounted righteous. And like David, we are accounted righteous through our confession of faith. So like Abraham and David, we are accounted righteous. This blessedness, oh, how happy is the man, oh, how happy is the woman to extol as or declare to be blessed. It's a state of blessedness to those who have put their faith in Jesus and have been accounted righteous by God. Do you know, I hope you do, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as far as our salvation is concerned, there's nothing more that we can do to be any more saved than what we are already. That is something at seven years old I misunderstood as a child. 
See, I went forward at seven years old at a revival meeting at a church in Winthrop Harbor, Illinois. And the preacher gave an invitation, and it took me a couple of days to respond. That's a good thing about revival meetings. Sometimes on the first teaching, you don't respond. So you get to come back the next night and get another shot at it. There can be conviction, but even as a child, conviction wasn't enough to get me to walk the aisle. And as a child, I pledged to the Lord that I'll do it tomorrow. And the next day, it, it took me a while. I'm glad that in that Baptist church, they sang, I'm assuming I don't have this as a memory. It was always a joke of our church that often the pastor would let them sing just as I am about 200 times to make sure. <laughs> they would go on and on and on. And I sat through every stanza. The amazing thing to me as a seven-year-old being convicted by the Lord, and I don't know how much conviction I had, but I knew I needed Jesus. Every verse that went by, the easier it got to sit. And I believe whether you're seven or 70, that is true to this day. You can have conviction and you can feel that, Lord, I need to respond to this. But conviction doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to respond. And as a seven-year-old, Every verse that passed, the easier it got to where, in my mind, there was a point I reached. It's like, I'm not going forward today either. I'm going to sit here one more day. But then the preacher said, one last verse. If no one responds, we'll close. So apparently I responded, and so they probably did another at least 50 verses after that. I don't know. Thing is, there was something about the ease of me sitting there, and I remember this as if it happened yesterday. When the pastor said one last verse, conviction hit hard again on me, and I knew I couldn't help but respond. I believe I might have even ran. I'm not sure. I know I was crying, and I had determined I wasn't going to cry. So I came home that night, and my mom noticed that I was a bit melancholy, maybe a little depressed. Shouldn't be. It should be, oh, how happy is the boy? I was seven, so I can't use man in there. But I wasn't. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, I know I went forward, but I haven't been baptized yet, so I'm not actually saved yet. She goes, oh, no, you're saved. Baptism came probably a week later. They had a baptistry in the church. I was so small that the pastor put me on his knee to dunk me. But even at seven, I had this concept that I hadn't followed through quite yet. There was more that needed to be done. My mom explained, and I don't remember how she explained it, but I remember that she did. That no, you've already done everything necessary for salvation. One more story of that little boy at seven years old. The night I was baptized, and I do believe it was the next week, it was on a Sunday night, and they allowed you then to have your first communion after receiving the Lord and being baptized. And so I was baptized. I was able to receive communion for the first time. 
that first Sunday, I remember, I wore a yellow shirt. Do you know that communion juice and yellow does not go together? I spilled it. I don't know if I got any of it in my mouth. It seemed like all of it went down my shirt. I was covered with juice. And then, to heap embarrassment upon a seven-year-old, everyone who was baptized tonight and had their first communion, please come down front after the service. We want to love on you a little bit. And so I remember trying to hide my communion-stained shirt. It wasn't until a few years ago. That's how we stand. Blood-covered before God. It dawned on me a few years ago. That's how we look to our Father God, covered by the blood of Jesus. And if that's how it looks when I see Jesus in heaven, I'm not going to try to hide the blood no longer. I'm going to let people see it. I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. Oh,